Go ahead and find your seat. Let's let the kids be gone. Those kids who are in the three-year-old through the third grade group, let's let them head out the side door. Three years old through third grade. Fourth, fifth, and sixth grade who are in the kids' choir, you head out to the kids' choir area. Those of you here in the auditorium for our Bible study, let's head to Job 41. Job 41 as we get study, get started with our Bible study this evening to follow up a little bit of what we talked about this morning. If you need the notes, raise your hand. The ushers will move around the auditorium and hand that to you so you can follow along a little bit better. I don't know if it's happened to you. It did to me. It happens frequently, too frequently for my taste. One, I send texts I don't mean to send. That the autocorrect changes the language. That always frustrates me. But the other thing that happens once in a while is the other day I was here and I was in between things and all of a sudden I heard somebody talking to me out of my pocket. Okay, I hadn't called anybody, I thought, but all of a sudden there's this voice coming and it was, you know, I was in the other section of the building by myself and all of a sudden this voice is talking and saying, Wayne, Wayne, I'm thinking, God? <laughs> in my pocket? Yeah. It, it really wasn't. It was somebody that I called by accident. They were just wondering, one of my relatives, you know, some emergency, something going on. And so it was one of those, you know, we call them the butt calls. I had it up here. Okay, so whatever that's called. Th- those things happen. Or all of a sudden we get these unexpected phone calls, you know, that happens. Job is there. He's in a whining, complaining situation. He's suffering. And all of a sudden, out of a tornado, he hears the voice of God. That's happening now in chapters 38, 39, and 40, and 41, where God is speaking to him, and it's the voice, and it's the Lord. And so here he's seeing this tremendous storm, and the Lord is telling him, as he opens up this conversation, especially as we get into the second part of the message, and when we get into 40 and 41, where all of a sudden God says to him, we looked at this this morning, we covered some of it, God speaks in verse 15 and says, Job, look at the behemoth. Look at this one big creature. And we explained this morning, there is, I, I don't know what it is exactly, but the possibilities that it could be one of those that we would call those dinosaurs, something of that sort, something that was the biggest of all the creation, according to what's the description given in Job chapter uh, 40 as he goes on talks about it. And then in chapter 41, he says, and look at Leviathan. I don't know what that creature is. Okay, we'll just throw some possibilities as we look at this part of the chapter. But again, God is saying, I want you to look at these two creatures. I mentioned this morning some different facts about it. And I wanted to just start off this evening with this thought. That there are some people that say that question, are they real or are they symbolic? Are they real, real animals of that time or were they representing? And here's the two different arguments that quote-unquote scholars will give. Some will say they're mythical creatures. That this isn't a real animal. It is referencing something that is just a symbol of an idea. And their argument is this. Behemoth, the word for behemoth, as I mentioned this morning, is a plural. Look at this one big beast, but it's actually like lots of beasts. That same type of reference is used, not the same word, but the same type of reference. In Daniel, he uses it as well. In Zechariah, he uses it as well in the book of Revelation, that he uses these huge creatures to represent governments that are wicked, governments that are evil. He talks about these great creatures. He talks about these dragons and those types of things that dragon in 
And if we remember the context of what we started with, Job chapter 40, when God's starting his second message to Job, Job has been seeing the tour of space and the earth and the rain and the you know, North Pole, South Pole, and all the animals, then God says, what do you have to answer to that? Basically, the beginning of chapter the beginning of chapter 40, and Job just says, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm not going to say anything. And God says to him then, in starting with verse 6, which we looked at this morning, the second time God speaks to him in starting with verse 6 out of the, out of the whirlwind tornado, he says, I'm going to demand of you that you give some answers here. You haven't given the answer that I'm looking for, so let me ask you some more. And if you, if you go down a little bit, he starts saying, okay, if you think that you are big enough to call me into question, like he said in verse 8, that you can condemn me. He says in verse 10, Deck yourself now with majesty and excellency and array yourself in glory and beauty. Such an, in other words, you take on my, my abilities. You are my majesty. You take on my glory. And then he challenges them. Cast abroad the rage of your wrath. Behold everyone that is proud, and you bring him low. Look on everyone that is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together. Bind their faces in secret. Then will I also confess unto you that your right hand can save you. You don't need me anymore. Basically, in the context, before he starts looking at behemoth and at Leviathan, he's saying, if you think you're so big and so tough, you deal with the wickedness of the world. You show how you can set the, you can handle all the chaos. If, the, if you're questioning what I do in your life, if you think that you're that man enough to handle the world's problems, and so in the context, he's talking about dealing with evil and problems, and many people will say the animal behemoth and Leviathan represent evil. And by the way, they do in other passages. Like Isaiah 27, Leviathan represents evil. And so that's that whole idea. And if you look at the very last verse where he says that this Leviathan in chapter 41, he is the king over all the children of pride. Well, if you had to read that the first moment and say, who's the king over all the children of pride? Satan. Okay. That involves Satan. And then their conclusion is, besides, there's no animals on earth that look like these animals when you describe them. So that's the argument that these are mere symbols. I don't hold to that view. I hold to the view that these are real creatures, real part of creation. The reason that I hold to it is, already in chapters 38 and 39, when he started this message, and he says, look at this. He was saying, look at real things. Look at the stars. Look at the rain. Look at the snow. Look at uh, how the rivers work. And then when he took them on the tour of the zoo, Look at the lion, look at the ostrich, look at, and he listed all those 12 different real animals. Why would he talk about all these real creatures and then all of a sudden he changes to do mythical creatures? That doesn't make sense to me. It seems to be consistent. And he says to him, look at behemoth. What does that say to you? There was something there. There was something to look at. And then he says the statement, I made behemoth when I made you. Well, if Job is real, then what does that mean about behemoth? It's real as well. Okay. And uh, then he gives some real exact details about the anatomy of the animals. He gives exact details about the diet of the animals. They give exact details about the habitat of the animal. What does that say to you? It's a real animal. It's a real animal. So with that in mind, this is what we talked about this morning. We talked about what is the behemoth. It's some great creature. 
Okay, I don't know what creature it is. Okay, we, you, you, we, none, and by the way, you don't know either. Okay, none of us knows for certain because we weren't there. Okay, but it's something, it's a huge creature. It's the biggest of all the creatures, whatever it happens to be. And then he gets into Leviathan. Now, when he talks about Leviathan, this is the longest text about any single animal in Scripture. And when he talks about Leviathan, some people will say it's a crocodile. Some will say it's a big shark. Some will say it's a whale. It's a sea serpent. It's something related to water, as we'll see in a moment. And so it's something that's vicious. Well, by the way, are crocodiles vicious? Okay, are sharks vicious? Yeah, would you say that some sea serpent could be vicious? Yeah, probably. And so when we go through, just let me remind you that both Behemoth and Leviathan... They aren't words that were given in English to something that we would say, okay, like lion, tigers, and bears, you know, aha, uh-huh, oh, uh-huh. um, this is a Hebrew word that nobody knew what it was, and they just took the Hebrew L and put it into the English L. The uh, not the Hebrew letters they just translated, transliterated them. So in the Hebrew it says Leviathan. That's how you pronounce it. So they just put it in. The translators just put it into our language with the L-E-V-I-A to get the same sound. So it's a transliteration. We don't know, but the root word that is in the Hebrew means something coiled or something twisted. And so with that in mind, uh, let me remind you that it's used in other passages. Sometimes it's clearly symbolic. Some other passages, it's clearly going to be used of some type of an animal. And one other thought before we just read through. Um, when he's talking about it, I, and this is, my, this is where I come down, I think it's a creature that is probably extinct today by the description of it, is just taking it in a literal sense. But here's when you look at the last two verses... This is where we conclude. What kind of a creature? He says this. Upon the earth there is not his like who is made without fear. I mean, no other creature causes fear like this one. In other words, behold all high things. He's the king over all the children of pride. And I think there's another rendering of that that helps us. And we'll get to that towards the end of the message. But here's when he gives the description. So I've been debating, should I just read it all the way through or just take it portion by portion? So let's do both of it. He starts talking to Leviathan and he starts talking to Job and he says, now Job, you've been, you've been saying these things about how you want to question me and before we go any further, look at Leviathan. After we've looked at Behemoth, look at Leviathan. And now he resorts. If you looked this morning, he, when we went through the first part of Behemoth, he never asked a question. But in the previous two chapters, he asked all questions. Now he returns to questions. Can you do this? Can you? And as I mentioned this morning, every pronoun throughout this chapter, can you, can a man, every reference to, the, to man or, or pronoun is all singular. It's not can mankind. He is talking one-on-one with Job, and he's basically saying, when he says, can a man do such and such with a Leviathan, what's he saying? Can you? Can you, Job? And so keep that in mind. You may want to write that in your Bible. That's what he does all the way through. So let's, let's read the questions. Can you, can thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord which you let down? Can you put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make supplications unto you? Will he speak soft words unto you? Will he, will he make a covenant with you? 
Will you take him for a servant forever, just like you would the cow or the donkey? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him? Oh, I'm sorry, I've missed verse 5. Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you bind him for your maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with barbed irons? Or his head with fish spears? By the way, let me just interject. In, in a lot of the original language in the Bible, the answer is clear by the way that it's phrased. What's the answer that seems obvious to you to all these questions? No. Okay. And he goes on. And he says in verse 8, Lay your hand upon him. Remember the battle. You'll do it no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at his sight? None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? And whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. I will not conceal. Now he goes back to the Leviathan. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Who can discover the face of his garment? Who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his teeth and the, uh, the doors of his face? Excuse me. And his teeth are terrible roundabout. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a close seal. One is so near to another that nowhere can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together that they cannot be cut asunder. By his kneesings a light doth shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth goes burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goes smoke, and out of, as out of a seething potter cauldron. His breath kindles coals, and a flame goes out of his mouth. In his neck remains strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of the nether millstone, literally of a millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of the breaking, that's the crashing of the, of the water, the breaking of the water, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, the harbogen. He esteems iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laughs at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreads sharp pointed things upon the mire. He makes the deep to boil, that's the deep seas, to boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. He makes a path to shine after him. One would think the deep, the waters, to be white, hoary frost that is like ice on top. He says, upon the earth there is not his like who is made without fear. He beholds all things. He's the king over all. Just break down the description, okay, and add some things. In this section, again, we said about the singular pronouns. The questions make it clear this is the most terrifying of all the critters. That could be, could be reference. We also know that when this beast is, is referenced, the behemoth is a land animal for the most part. The, uh, the leviathan is a water animal for the most part. This animal is not caught easily like any other fish or, or sea creature. That's that whole first section. Can you draw them out with your fish hooks, with your nets, with your cords? And the answer is no, you can't. You can't capture this thing. And uh, it's an animal that it's not an animal that people would want to try to domesticate. You wouldn't want your daughters, your maidens, to be petting this thing. Because, you know, it, now, the, one of the suggestions of some of what this creature is, is that this creature could be a crocodile. 
Okay? Would you want your kids to have a pet crocodile? Okay? A pet shark? That's like putting a piranha in your fish tank. Okay? You, you, he's going, he goes on, he says, it's not eaten, in verse 6 where he says, not a companion, um, that's what the King James says, shall the companions make a banquet of him, shall they part him, and the idea is, do you call people together so you can have your Thanksgiving feast around this as your main course? And the answer is no, because nobody wants to go and get it. They don't want to sell it, because in order to sell it, they have to catch it, and nobody wants to catch it. It's not worth it. Um, it's not easily hunted down. He's given a whole description of the different weapons that are very common. He says it means nothing to this beast. Its mouth is not pried open. By the way, if it was a huge crocodile, you can understand some of this that he's talking about. That's vicious teeth, things of that sort. It's covered with scales. He describes them as being so tight that it's just like a suit of armor on this animal. Then he says this comment that kind of, when I read it, I, I chuckled slightly, by his kneesings a light doth shine. Okay, that's, that's the rendering that I have and that I am, am uh, favorable towards. However, I don't think most of us use the word kneesings. What's a kneesing? By his kneesings, he says, by his kneesings a light doth shine. Well, if we're going to explain this animal, we've got to figure out what the English word is first. Okay? The English word, by the way, anneasing is an old English word that's kind of out of date word, but it was used around you know, in the mid, mid uh, 1600s when the King James came in. But the Hebrew word only appears here in this text. So it makes it difficult to say, okay, exactly what this is, because this is the only time it shows up. Now, we do have some other times that the Hebrew word shows up, and the conclusion is it's probably by his snorting, by his blowing out the breath, his grunting. If he were a land animal, we'd say by his growlings. Some, some say this is when the crocodile comes to surface, and when he comes up to the surface, he blows out the air, and so that's a kneesing. That's what he's talking about. That it kind of on the early dawn, the sun is coming across the waterway, and you see all of a sudden this breaking of the water, like a whale, all of a sudden spouting. And so that's, a, that's what they mean by the kneesings. Problem is the next few words that go along with it. Because he says, okay, by his kneesings, if it's just breathing out, a light doth shine, his eyes are as the eyelids of the morning. And then he goes on and says, out of his mouth goes what? Burning lamps and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goes smoke. Okay, is this all just picturesque? Or if he's being literal, then what could this possibly be? Okay, something that is a creature that we have a lot of legendary accounts about fire-breathing reptiles. Is that even possible? That there could have been something like that? Well, the possibilities, you know, aren't so extreme as what, you know, some who would be critical of that interpretation would mean. Um, there is the possibility, as I said, that this could be, you know, just poetic speech. But when he keeps on referencing there's smoke and there's burning lamps, it seems that something here involves some type of fire smoke, something that we're not, you know, we're not familiar with animals doing it today. But is there in the animal kingdom, in the insect kingdom, are there creatures that do put out some burning uh, defense mechanisms? Yeah, there's a couple of them that stand out real quick. 
There's a couple of them. A, a lightning bug, okay? It's got a burning chamber where there's a chemical reaction. The bombardier beetle, it has a burning reaction of defense that puts out uh, a liquid that's at 212 degrees. That would, that would chase away other creatures, okay? So if in small portions of creation, God has invested in some creatures the ability to make a chemical reaction, could he do it in big creatures? Sure. Sure he could. And by the way, there's interesting that even some of the fossils that are genuine fossils that we talked about this morning, that you know, that's, they're, they're not unreal creatures that, that were of the dinosaur class. The unreal is just a matter of when they existed. But the, some of them do have in their fossils indications that there's chambers up in their head that nobody knows what these chambers were for. That very likely could be the ability to do a chemical reaction within those chambers, just very similar to the bombardier beetle. That could some could there be have been a few creatures that all of a sudden there was a chemical reaction and they blew out smoke. Yeah. That they may have blown out a fiery blast of steam. That's not so far-fetched according to this passage, nor according to naturalists that understand that this is a possibility. There are those, those on a small level, there is that case in nature. And so is that what he's talking about? Well, he goes on, he talks, and he says that this animal has a strong, very distinct neck area, which all of a sudden causes me some question about the crocodile, because the crocodile is one of those creatures is, where's the neck of the crocodile? Okay, and so it's probably something a little bit different. His skin is hard. His heart is as hard as a rock. It's just something that's impenetrable. When he surfaces, the breakings are you know coming up. But all of a sudden, if you're sailing along, and and, and I think he's humorous in what he says when he makes the comment that he says, okay, when he verse twenty five, when he raises himself, so let, let's picture it. This creature's coming out of the water, you're in your canoe, and there you are, you're you're going down the river, all of a sudden this thing, you see this thing breaking the water, he says, What's the reaction of the people who are in the canoe? It says, The mighty become afraid, and by reason of the breakings, they what? They purify themselves. What's that mean? They get right with God real quick, okay? It's that idea that they want to clean up their life. Why? Because they think they're going to die. Okay. That's the point of that text. Okay. And he goes on, he says that, you know, the, again, he states a second time, common weapons, they mean nothing to this creature. They're just, they're, they're not against. It's strong. He's talked about how all these weapons are as iron. The iron is like straw and stubble. The underside is like stones. Okay, that, that, that seems impenetrable. He lounges in miry areas, but he stirs up the waters of the deep. Creates, and when he talks about this, um, this idea of uh, verse 32, uh, where the deep to be hoary, where he talks, makes a path to shine after him. The idea is all of a sudden he creates, when he comes out in the water, he creates a whiteness upon the water. Well, what is that? that all of a sudden would follow behind where there's a lot of white. White caps, which means that this creature is, it's big, it's moving, okay? It's, when it stirs up the water, it's not like, now this is me. If I, and I've had this experience a couple of times, where I've been, you know, we're, we're in a, um, a river, we're in some type of lake, and all of a sudden I see a water snake of some sort. 
That is enough. This long. That is enough for me to get out of the water and to stay out of the water. That's me. None of you that would probably bother, but this is me. I don't like snakes. They're not my thing. A good snake is a dead snake. Okay. Okay. So what he is saying here is that when this creature, can you imagine the reaction when this creature comes across the water? And a little snake, there's not much in the water as far as, as, far as all of a sudden it, it moving the water a whole lot. When this thing is in the water, the water's moving. It just stirs it up. And he says it's unique amongst all the creatures. Now that's the basic physical description of the animal. And it appears to me that what this probably fits best, an animal we don't know, the Leviathan, probably some type of those many legendary accounts, many different instances of people writing that they saw some type, a sea serpent, you know, something that was Loch Nessish, something that was, you know, what's uh, Champ up in Lake Champlain, areas of the Five Fingers, something of that sort, but vicious. That was really, really scary at the time. So, Job, look at the biggest land animal and look at the most fierce water animal. Those two, he wants them to, to take into account. Job knew about them. But let's, let's do where we were this morning. Let's not get so caught up with the identity of the animal we forget the intent of the passage. The intent of the passage isn't to tickle our fancy to say, wow, let's, let's from this text, let's do all kinds of research and spend all of our time talking about dinosaurs and what ha- were they real and all that. Let's look at the context. You, you, Job, look at Leviathan. It's supposed to teach you something, this creature, whatever it is. If, if it is an overgrown crocodile, it still would teach us the same thing. If it's King Kong... I'm, I'm sorry, not King Kong. If it's, uh, what's the, the uh, which one? Godzilla. If it's a Godzilla, excuse me. Okay, not King Kong, but Godzilla. If it's a Godzilla type creature, okay, whatever it is, we're supposed to learn something. What is Job supposed to learn? Well, again, we have to remind ourselves where Job was in, the, in this conversation. Job was serving the Lord, following the Lord in the midst of all of his trials. He wasn't rebelling, but he's starting to wonder out loud, Lord, do you really care for me? Lord, why haven't you heard me? Why haven't you answered my prayer? He started to wonder, how come I'm having all these problems? Why don't the wicked have more problems than I? They should have more problems than me because I've been living for you. And it's not a shaking a fist at God, but it's just wondering, which by the way, do you ever wonder these questions? Why did the wicked prosper? You know, why don't they get smacked down when you're in the middle of some real trial and trouble and you say, you know, there's people at work that, man, a days, they, they use God's name in vain. They just, they're dishonest, they're vulgar, they're whatever, and they don't seem to have the same difficulties I do not. It doesn't make sense. And you express it very quietly. Well, Job is expressing it before his friends. And he said, I want a face-to-face meeting with you, God. I just don't understand this. You owe me an explanation. And that's what triggered this whole conversation, where God is basically saying to him, you want to take me to court? You want to sue me? We talked about this this morning, and most of you were here. That he said, okay, you know, you're, you're going to sue me? You little, little, you know, little Job's going to sue great God is the essence of it. And he says, you know, look at Behemoth, look at, and where it's at, 
is Job has kind of made himself on the, as an authority. I'm your child. I believe in you. Therefore, you owe me. And using Leviathan, God makes some real statements in the midst of Leviathan that are so, so challenging. That he just says, and so let's, let's park into it. Okay, right before he said, look at Behemoth and Leviathan, God had said, I'm going to ask you questions. Gird up your loins. Get ready. This is going to be a tough one. You answer me rather than I answer you. you, you verse 8, look at it again. We read it before. He said, you dare... You challenge the way that I'm doing things, my decisions, my determinations. You're going to accuse me of doing something wrong. That is, you condemn me. That Rasaw word we talked about this morning. You think you're an equal to me, that you can put on majesty and glory and you can run the world? Just try it. Just try it. And basically, you know, he says, do you think you can humble the wicked? And that's the gist. That's the last question, which is a very important question to the interpretation of Leviathan. Do you think you can humble the wicked? And so he asks all those questions, and that's when he's, uh, he's challenging Job. He says, now look at Behemoth, look at Leviathan, and let me take you where we were this morning. When it's all said and done, God doesn't stop and say, here's what I wanted you to learn. He just says, look at this creature, look at this creature, look at this creature, look how big it is, look how fierce it is, look at this creature, and gives this long explanation. Can you handle it? Can you do this? Can you do this? Basically what God is saying is these, these animals are bigger than you. You can't control them. You can't capture them. None of your weapons. When you see the Leviathan, do you remember how he made that comment about you know, verse 8? Did you, did you mark verse 8 where he says, lay your hand upon him and remember the battle you had? You'll never do it again. Okay. You, you, know, you wake him up once, you'll never wake him up a second time. He's, the, he's so fierce. And he says, in, you know, and all of that is implying these statements. I made them, and I made you. They, these creatures, I control them. I am big enough to control them, um, and they fear me. But you who is somebody that I created, you're questioning my control of you? You don't come to me with fear and trembling? You, you think that you are some hot stuff here. You think you're very impressive. You think that you're very important, and you can tell me? whether I'm right or wrong with what I've done in your life. And so God in his pointedness is challenging Job this way. There's another phrase he makes in the middle of the text. That twice he makes phrases that I think are very important. Look at verse 34 where he says, Behold all high things he is king over all the children of pride. Uh, this isn't a, a picture of Satan. I think the application, interpretation of the text is, you look at Leviathan. I asked you just moments ago, could you deal with wicked people? Could you abase the wicked people? Remember? Could you humble the wicked people? Remember he asked them that in those first few verses, starting with verse 6 down to verse 14. And God's point is, when people who are even proud, they are humbled when they see this animal. Those who think that they can get away with everything, when Leviathan shows up, they want to get right with me. Because they're afraid of Leviathan. This creature that I made, he humbles everybody. He brings people to realize they're not so big and bad after all. Because who's big and bad? Leviathan. Do you follow what he's saying? He's the king. He is the one, in other words, that the proud people kneel before. 
this dumb animal, this big animal, it'll break the most pompous, arrogant heart of, a, of individuals, hunters or kings, because they can't stop it. They can't stop it. He makes another statement about Leviathan that's important. It's in verses 10 and 11. In the middle of asking the questions, he says, none is so fierce that dare stirs him up. You don't wake him up. Okay? You let the sleeping dragon lie. In other words, who then is able to stand before me? If you wouldn't dare bother this creature because you're afraid of what this creature can do, how dare you, Job, who you, you're afraid of that animal, how dare you, the word stand before has the idea of put out the chest and you stand before God and say, answer me. And he is saying, you tremble at Leviathan, and he's something that I made. You should tremble at me. Because I am bigger than the Leviathan. And if you're in the hands of an angry God, what I can do to you is worse than what Leviathan can do to you. If you don't get right with me. What a tremendous challenge to Job. What a just a point. Then he makes the comment that is kind of a struggle in interpretation. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? He makes the statement, the word prevented, the Hebrew word, okay? Not the English translation, but the Hebrew word is, who has presumed upon me? Who has forced me? Who has put me in a corner, okay? That you have given me something. You have done things for me, and I am obligated to repay you. Do you know where he's going? So you come to church, and you think, I owe you. You read your Bible, you memorize verses, you put money in the plate, and now you think that I have got to give you good stuff? Who, who would do that? And God says this coming, he says, who would give things to me and assume that I owe them? And his next statement, if you've never circled it, you've got to circle it now. His next statement is, basically, I don't owe you anything, Job. I don't owe anybody. Because whatsoever is under the whole of heaven is mine in the first place. There's nothing you can give me that buys me. Because whatever you gave me, it was mine in the first place. I gave it to you on loan. There's no financial gift. In other words, and by the way, Job, your kids really belong to who? They belong to me, God is saying. Your crops really belong to me. Your cattle that you were giving in sacrifice in chapter 1, verse 5, the cattle that you gave... You gave me one cow. You gave me one oxen in sacrifice. Do you think I owed it to you because you gave me one of those cows? And we would sing a song that says, He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in. You don't buy me off. You cannot stand here, Job. Take me to court and say, You owe me because I tithed. You owe me because... I sacrificed animals in the past. He says, 
that, that didn't impress me. They were mine in the first place. So God is, oh, he's, he's, he's putting Job in his place. It is just, it, the conversation is done. It's done. Look at Behemoth, this huge creature that you can't control, but I can. Look at Leviathan, the most fierce of beasts that scares you. Doesn't scare me. Look at all the stuff that you've got. I don't know you anything. And then God stops. That's the end of it. Chapter 40, 41, where he's, he's done. He doesn't bring, he doesn't, as you and I would say, he doesn't draw in the net and say, okay, let's just sing two stanzas of Josiah's I am, you got to respond. He stops. Well, basically he does this. You know, he, he spe- he's ended, and Job has to answer him now. Because God had already said twice, God had already said to him, and asked him, and, and go to chapter 38, verse 3. God had already said, I will demand of you and you will answer me. Look where he said it in chapter 40, verse 1. He said it, um, I'm sorry. Um, he made that comment again. Yeah, in verse 7 of chapter 40. He says, I will demand of thee and you must answer me. You have to declare. And so he's told him twice, you're going to give me an answer at the end of this. Now it's time to, for Job to answer. Can, can I ask you to do something for a couple moments? Here for a couple minutes, between you and whoever's sitting there. If you had to write down an answer, if you were Job and you were in his sandals, what would you say at this moment? Uh, let me see if I can help you out. If you had to finish this state, sentence, I, God, am whatever you want to put in there when it comes to you and, be, when it comes to you and me. What would you put in that blank? In response to basically God has said something. How do you interpret God's comments to Job at this moment? I, God, am or I am not this when it comes to you and me, Job. What would you put there? I'll I'll give you a minute here. Talk with somebody next to you. What would you write in there? I, God, this is, what is God just showing to Job? And Job is going to have to respond. Go ahead. Take a minute or two here. Do a little bantering. What has God just expressed about himself? Maybe as you're just thinking about it before we discuss. What, what thought do you think God was really stressing to him? I'll give you another 30 seconds yet before I jump in. You didn't have a lot of time. But for sake of time with communion. What did you put in there? What was God stressing to Job? Or you would say, wow, this, if I were Job, this I would have got. Anybody? What's that? He's in control. Anybody else? What's that? He's greater. Anything, anybody else? He's superior. He's holy. Anything else do you have? He's not answerable. Ron, what'd you have? He's omnipotent. Anything else? I'm sorry. He's sovereign. Powerful. Okay. Yes, sir. He's patient. <laughs> Man, wasn't he ever with Job? Yeah. What else? Almighty. Yeah, I, I, I wrote down some of the almost identical things that you did, that if this is, this is what God said without saying it directly, right? He's saying, I ask all these questions. He's basically saying, I'm in control. You're not. 
He's basically saying, I'm the one asking questions here, not you. Okay? He's basically saying, I can handle evil better than you can. He's basically saying, I should be respected and feared above all creatures. Right? He's basically saying, I don't owe you a thing. And all you had, it was mine. So if I took it, it really wasn't that I was taking something from you. Because it was mine. You never owned it in the first place. And there were several you are. I'm sovereign God over you and your life. Now the other question, how would you respond now? If you were Job, remember, Job earlier said, I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. But God doesn't want him to keep it. Have we ever done this? Have you ever gotten in conversation and you said, okay, yeah, okay, I got you upset, so I'm just not going to say anything anymore. None of you would do this, okay? But sometimes in the Burgraff household, it happens. That when we have these conversations, then instead of talking anymore, it's just like, okay, I'll just be quiet. That's what you want me to do anyway, so I'll just be quiet. And that's not where the conclusion of the conversation, there's something that needs to be said, but me or whoever it is, I'm not willing to say it. Well, God has, Job has already done that to him once. I'm not going to say anything. I'll just be quiet. I won't say a word. I'll just, you know. And God, God, Look up Leviathan. Look up Behemoth. You've got to say something. I want an answer out of you. I want you to respond to me and not just go, I'll just, I'll just sit here and be a martyr and not say a word. What word would you say? What word does God want? <laughs> what did you say? You were right and I was wrong. Isn't that easy to say? Job's response. Job's response. By the way, as, as we jump into Job's response, before we do it, let's, let's remember these thoughts. Okay, these are critical thoughts in finalizing the passage. We said this morning, even godly, godly, godly Job had room for spiritual growth. That's what God's dealing with them. All believers have room for spiritual growth and improvement. We said this this morning. Because of that, we need to regularly examine ourselves for those subtle, weak spots of pride. That's where we stopped. There is a most profound thought that adds to this. That is so, this is, this is the book. This is where it ends up. Even God, the, every godly saint will find out ultimate satisfaction when they have a personal close encounter with God. Even if you lost everything, even if you lost your spouse, you lost your car, you lost your job, if you do what Job did in these next few verses, you will have ultimate satisfaction. I didn't say that you will have all kinds of happy joy and no more problems. You will have ultimate satisfaction. That's peace that passes. Okay, what did Job do? What did Job do? Here's what he does. Job makes a confession. That's where God's been driving him to. Make a confession which involved two things. 
He apologizes, and I'm not taking him in the order of the text, but they happen here. He apologizes for challenging God's authority. I want you to follow along, and as I'm reading the verses, I want to highlight a couple things. Then Job, verse chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no thought can be withholden from thee. There's a lot more than in this interpretation. We've got to come back to it. The next phrase is a quote Job is quoting God. As if, you ask me this question, God? You ask me, who is he that hides counsel without knowledge? That, that isn't Job's thinking. Job is re- saying, this is what you asked me. Then he responds, therefore have I uttered that I understood not. And I, things too wonderful for me which I knew not. In other words, I opened my mouth when I shouldn't. I just didn't understand. But that beginning of cha- uh, verse 3, you'll find that in chapter 38, verse 2. It happens again in verse 4, where he is quoting God. He starts off, here I beseech thee and I will speak. The next phrase, I will demand of you and declare thou unto me. That's not, that's not from Job's mind. Job is quoting what God has asked him twice. If you don't understand that, you're going to think he's contradicting himself. He is saying, here's what you asked me, here's my answer. The phrases, the phrases go together then, if you understand that, that in verse 4, the second half is questioned in chapter 38, verse 3, in chapter 40, verse 7. So he's repeating God's question. And now we're to Job's thoughts. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye sees, sees thee. He's making a statement. The statement is, I had heard all about you. I had heard all kinds of wonderful things about you, but now, when you've given me this, this tour of the universe, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now I see firsthand the God that I thought I knew about, the God I had heard about. But now, having this experience, now I really know more about you. So that's what he says in verse 5, and here's his response. Wherefore, or because of that, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. There is his point of apologizing, his repentance, his admission of guilt. And there, it's interesting where he says, I abhor. The word literally means I'm going to reject. I'm going to refuse. We might use the word repent, okay, in the in translation. And if you look at the English translation, the myself is in italics, which means what? It means the translators put the direct object in. It, there isn't one in the Hebrew. I abhor something. I'm rejecting something. And those who did the interpretations, a lot of them put in italicize myself because that makes sense in the context. But what does it mean, I abhor myself? I, I, I think I am vile. I am a worm. Well, that's what the others had said about Job, but that's not what Job has said. And so if we understand I abhor myself with this idea, I abhor what I have said, what I have been speaking, the attitude that I had, that's what I reject. I reject the thought pattern that I allowed myself to get into. I reject the idea that I had the opportunity and the ability to question God. That's what I'm rejecting when I, reject, when I abhor myself, I abhor what I had done. 
And then he makes the comment, I repent in, in ashes and dust. We all understand that. that. That was very visible. That was something that was done very, very outwardly, that they would throw the dust in the air. It's showing grieving. And I really, really repent. It would be, you know, in, in our society. I, I, I'm going to really flub this one up. But in our society, sometimes we do it rarely. Sometimes we say, do a come forward invitation, kneel here. That would be this public expression that is real strong compared to just praying in the pew. And he is saying, I'm going to do a real strong, real visual way of, I really mean it, I was wrong. And he's throwing the dust up in the air. So there's an apology. A genuine apology where he is repenting of what he had thought and how he had the attitude. In the beginning of it, he acknowledges that God is fully in charge. In full control. Interesting the words that he uses here. We're in verse 2. I know that you can do every. And no thought can be withholden from thee. It, it, don't interpret it this way. Don't interpret it to say, oh, that means God knows everything that is happening. True, everything that I think. But what he's saying is, I now know in my heart. This is the context and the verbiage. That you can do everything you choose to do. By the way, God can. God can do anything he chooses to do. And that none of your thoughts or plans, that they should be withheld. You're, you're, the idea of the thoughts is not my thoughts, but actually that none of your thoughts can be withholden from you. Your plans, your decisions, your determinations, your, your, your whatever word you want to put there. That none of the things that you, Father in heaven, have determined, none of them can be withholden. If you want to give me an illness, not my will, but thine be done. That's what he's doing. That's what he's saying. He is saying in this moment, you give and you take as you will. I mean, think this through. Job is confessing, you took my kids. You took my health. God, I am fi- he's finally come to a place. I'm okay. It hurt. It's not easy. But I'm okay. I'm going to trust you if you take things away from me. A family member. A job. A vehicle. You're in control. If you know this is what's best for me, at this moment, you're in control. That's, that's a big statement, folk. That's saying, you mold me as you will. If you have some trial that is best for me to go through to help me to grow, so be it. If, if you want me to face some difficulty, none of your thoughts should be withholden. If this is how you're going to make me conform to the image of Christ, whatever it takes, use me as you will. That means, God, I will serve you. Whatever you want, your thoughts, your plans should not be withholden. You determine how I can be serving you, and I will do it. You determine, and think this through. Local church is what God has designed for us to get involved in and to contribute Wherever you want me to get involved in and contribute, I am willing to do. Even the nursery. (laughs) Even teaching. 
even sharing the word of God. I am willing to do this. You, God, you own my stuff. My stuff, whatever that is. Therefore, it is not a sacrifice to make contributions charitably. You own it anyway. God, this means that I will let you direct my life. Um, my stuff and my stuff, my things, I'm not going to let them control me and become a God over me. I won't let what possessions I want or have take me away from you because you're more important. They're your kids. This is what you say. I will do that. I will let you take my kids, do my kids, move my kids. I'd rather have them stay here close to me and help me to be happy. No. You are in charge of my kids' lives. They belong to you more than they belong to me. Actually, my kids are really his kids. See how this works out? You have my time. My time is yours. I'm not going to get so busy that I forget you this week and don't have time to pray or read the scriptures. I'm not going to get so, so caught up with time that I forget to worship you. You're in control. That's acknowledging God as sovereign. That's where Job is going to find ultimate satisfaction. He's still not going to have his ten kids. He still at this moment doesn't have any crops back. He still at this very moment doesn't have servants back. He's still sitting in the ash heap, but he's found great contentment by acknowledging God is God. He's in control. That is easy to say on a Sunday night while we sit in church. It's hard to live when you go home this week and there's problems. But basically what you're saying is this. This night, this week, you're saying these words to God. Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. That's the lesson from Leviathan and Behemoth. That's the prayer we should sing even right now as we get ready for communion. If we want real, perfect communion with Christ Almighty, then let's do this. Let's say to him from our hearts, you have your way with us, whatever it may be.